Hello listeners, this is Matt from Uncanny Treks, and I want to take a moment to tell you about our brand new Patreon at patreon.com slash uncannytreks. On our Patreon, we offer lots of exclusive content in multiple tiers, including access to our brand new Patreon-exclusive podcast, X-Men 92 vs. Young Justice. On this podcast, we follow the same format as B5 vs. DS9, but with an entirely new focus on reliving the nostalgia of 90s X-Men animated series and comparing it to the fast-paced action of Young Justice. Both of these animated series have recently been renewed for new seasons, so we felt it was a great time to return to these two comic book-based properties. If you're interested in subscribing, please visit us at patreon.com slash uncannytreks. You can always reach out to us on Twitter at uncannytreks. Enjoy the show, and as always... Thank you for listening. Welcome back to the Galaxy's Greatest Podcast about the two great 90s space station shows, Babylon 5 versus Deep Space 9. We are a part of Uncanny Treks. This is Bob in Cascadia. I got Matt from the Southland on the line. How you doing tonight, Matt? Doing all right. Had to be uh, exposed to another Ferengi episode on DS9. Yes, yes. Oh, there's plenty more. At least at least one a season, Matt. Yeah, Babylon 5 was okay. Just, just saying. So. Yeah, yeah. So tonight we're talking Hunter Prey, which is Babylon 5, Season 2, Episode 13. And we're talking Prophet, that's spelled like the Bajoran Prophet's motive, uh, from the 20th of February, 1995, which is Deep Space Nine, Season 3, Episode 16. And since I didn't say it, uh, Hunter Prey aired on the 1st of March, 1995. So still right next to each other in time. You want to talk us through the uh, A-plot map? Sure. Uh, Babylon 5, that is. Babylon 5, Hunter Prey, in the A-plot, Dr. Franklin's old teacher and President Santiago's personal physician, Dr. Everett Jacobs, is the subject of a manhunt by intelligence agent Derek Cranston for information he has that proves Vice President Clark was lying about his illness when he abandoned Earth Force One just before it exploded. Dun-dun-dun. Conspiracy shit going on already. Deep State Watch, baby. And so in the B-plot, we've got Sheridan deciding to get more persistent in making overtures to the Vorlon Ambassador Kosh, which uh, leads me to say that I forgot how much I love this uh, cold open, which is where Sheridan and Ivanova are getting a close look at Kosh's ship, which is sitting in the docking bay in the station, and they notice both its shifting hull patterns, and Ivanova talks about how the... uh, ship seems to have a presence in the dreams of anybody who comes into the docking bay. Yeah, when we first started this podcast, uh, one of the message boards or something I was on had a meme that uh, used this particular scene to make fun of the CGI on B5. But now that I know it's like the Vorlon ship, 
I'm kind of okay with it. I'm like, it, it looks weird, but it, it's okay. Like, I don't know if it was poor CGI or done on purpose, but... Yeah, I mean, I don't think the CGI is of very high quality in the scene, but I honestly don't care. Like, when I first saw this earlier this year, I was just so stoked. I I really like when you get, like, organic technology about um, in any sci-fi narrative. I always think that's really fun. And also, it was really... It, if I remember correctly, that this is the first time in like a season and a half where we're really getting progress on the Vorlons. And so when I first saw this episode, I was just so happy both about how cool the organic technology was and to get Vorlon progress that, yeah, no, no CGI objections uh, stuck with me. Right. And Sheridan points that out later on. He's like, you weren't interested in anything. You didn't attend meetings until I came aboard. Like... So apparently he knew uh, Sinclair was not the right person. Yeah, yeah, nice, nice little bit of uh, management uh, there, and a little little meta acknowledgement uh, by JMS of perhaps fan complaints online. It is true. I mean, he Kosh never attended the meetings. Like he was never there. He just shows up randomly, and I think he might have been in like one or two but not certainly not very often in season one and certainly more a little more in season two but yeah just like you though i'm excited to actually learn about the forlorn and what's going on with them it's not just the cool suit but uh uh-huh. we, we've moved from snake-like horror to cool suit interesting transition we've made i'm, o- I'm okay with it bob i'm i'm, I'm starting to in, to like it it's kind of <laughs> neat you're beginning to get fond of it. Okay. As okay. I've said before, I want to wear one to work and just be like, I think it'd be pretty badass. I mean, the disturbing thing about most jobs is that uh, if you were just as cryptic as Kosh, you would probably be rather as cryptic, but as short and definitive as Kosh, you would probably be a much more effective worker. That is very true. I'm actually, I've, I've learned that in my own life. Never not, 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 not cryptic, just sh- kind of short, just you know, yeah, to the point. Short. Don't, don't give uh, them any room for confusion or offense. That's always the trick. <laughs> so it is great to see uh, Bernie Casey, who we may remember as Cisco's old friend, Cal Hudson in the Maquis two-parter earlier this season. Uh, so now he's on our other show as Agent Cranston, the intelligence agent sent to hunt down uh, Dr. Jacobs. Um, I haven't gotten to this point in watching Sequest DSV, but apparently there's an episode of Sequest DSV that aired the same year, uh, 95, as these two episodes. And in that one, it also has both Bernie Casey and uh, Wanda de Jesus, who plays Sarah, uh, General Haig's agent in this episode. And they're both in the same Sequest uh, season three episodes. I I don't know. I just find that a kind of funny detail. Yeah. Do you think these guys like all had the same agent? And he just kept like pushing them out to these shows. Yeah, I don't, I don't know. Or you, maybe, maybe it's something like the casting directors on the three shows like compared notes, because there seems to be a lot of overlap between Babylon Five and Sequest, and a lot of overlap between DS Nine and Babylon Five, but not a lot of overlap between DS Nine and Sequest from what I've seen. So, I don't know. Maybe it's just the the Babylon five casting director was tight with the casting directors of both, both, both other shows. I don't know. Yeah. Well, I kind of want to know if they had the same casting director. <laughs> I don't, I don't really want to feel like, I don't feel like researching it. I don't think it would be the same. I, I, I mean, I, I don't know anything about how TV is made really, but it seems like being a casting director on a, 
on a full network show, that would probably be a pretty close to a full-time job, you would think. But I, I got to say that I always love it when like we see a DS9 actor on B5 because it makes our, our premise for this podcast even stronger. Yeah, I, I always love it just because it gives us material to talk about. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, uh, <laughs> I, I've, I've kind of noticed that. I'm like, eh, you know, like they're not that similar. They're, they're I'm, I'm, I don't know. I don't know. I mean, they're not that similar, and yet they very much are. It's, it's, I, I can't really, can you think of any other two properties that are so similar yet so distinct off the top of your head? It's a, it's a weird thing. I don't know. The more I watch B5, the more I realize how different it is from DS9. I just, I can't think of anything like, and, and that's what's so intriguing about this, this little experiment we're doing. It's like, oh, every, it, it's like people were just looking at the surface level when they were accusing uh, the DS9 people of... Well, I mean, they were correctly accusing the Paramount executives of it, I think. Yeah, it's, but, I mean, it, they're so, there's still enough difference. It, it's like you... It's not like they're indistinguishable. I mean, they're very, like... Yeah, yeah, I don't know. I, I, I can get why JMS would, might be pretty angry, though, given that, like, Babylon 5 is a new intellectual property at the time and is a fairly radical experiment and then to have you know in in its way right like it's one of the first tv shows to really do these long season these this long overarching story it's you know doing a kind of radical thing of like total cgi for the non-actor stuff and then to have like a very established franchise sort of honing in on your brand i I get it, man. Like, it, you know, you, you well could have only seen Babylon 5 go one season, especially given how bad the first season was, relatively speaking. So here's my proposal. We need to try to get JMS to do a watch along of DS9. <laughs> I, I kind of find JMS insufferable on social media. Um, <laughs> and so I like I'm happy to enjoy the man's work when it's good. And I think, I think sometimes it very much is, but I don't really want to interact with him. I really wish people, if you're listening, uh, stop tagging JMS when we tweet memes about Babylon 5. It's really cringe. Don't do that. You're fucking weird. Um, but yeah. <laughs> and we lost a Twitter follower. <laughs> it happens, man. It happens. And it's not just one. It's like it's like two or three. I'm, none of whom I'm sure actually listen to the show. But 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 as 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 we watch along with JMS, I just want to be like just pointing out stuff. Like, look, look at that. See, it's different. Look at this. It's it's different. It's different enough. You know what I mean? I'm just really like... <laughs> <laughs> to uh, go back to the question of actors, did you recognize at all Tony Steedman who plays Doctor Jacobs? No, I had no clue who that was. He seems vaguely familiar. Apparently he did a lot of British comedy in the 60s and the 70s, but I I think maybe I've just seen him on advertisements for like weird British shows that I've never watched, but I couldn't I couldn't pick out anything that I would really have recognized him from. Um apparently he did voice Justin Hammer on the 90s Iron Man cartoon. God, I love the intro to that cartoon. That was the only good thing about that. It was that I am Iron Man. I think you're forgetting another uh, another important detail about that show, Matt. Yeah, uh, Iron Man had that weird six pack. Was that the other what, detail? That, was, that wasn't that wasn't a great thing about that show. You didn't love you didn't love the six pack. It, I, I didn't understand it because he's wearing armor, but yet he has this six pack is showing through. <laughs> like, what kind of armor is that? 
spandex so, armor. <laughs> setting setting aside the fact that Robert Downey Jr. was genius casting for Iron Man, like Iron Man is by far the worst like major superhero, right? I, I get. I mean, he's kind of neat. I mean, I, I like his. I like his. I like the Iron Man. The whole premise is pretty cool. Why don't you like Iron Man, Bob? I, th I think the thing I don't like about Iron Man is that his stories get so dated. Like, um, the the run that everybody says is, like, a really great run on Iron Man is Matt Fractions, uh, who's the guy who wrote the Hawkeye run that apparently the new Hawkeye show is pretty liberally ripping off. Yeah. Um, but I – so, like, I wanted to read it. Like, I really like Fractions' other work. I think Satellite Sam is great. I love the Hawkeye run. love his Iron, Immortal Iron Fist run. I'm looking forward to reading his X-Men run when I get to it. But uh, I tried to read his Iron Man run, and it's just incredibly dated. And it, it, like, I think it started in like 2007, and it's just incredibly dated. And I think all Iron Man comics sort of have that quality of they always want to do like kind of very of the moment things of like computer generated art and like up to the minute technology plots. And then if you wait more than like two years, it's just is so painful to read. Well, yeah, I mean, it's all about technology, and if the technology has advanced further than what was in the Iron Man comic, it's going to be kind of weird, but I mean... It's not I, even I, that it's advanced further, it's just that, like, the Iron Man, more than most, seems to predicate it on predicting things that are obviously not going to happen, and then when they don't happen, it just looks looks kind of weird. Yeah, I actually enjoyed Matt Fraction's run. Isn't that the one where he, like, basically breaks down to, like, all the way to his, like, original Iron Man suit? Yeah, point, basically, yeah. it's like, as I understand it, he, uh, Civil War broke the character so much that he basically has to, like, Fraction has to, like, hard reboot Tony Stark's personality in order to kind of get the stink of Civil War off yeah. of him. Yeah, I read that several years ago. It was okay. It wasn't that bad. Maybe I mean, I, but should... I, I bet if I go back and read it now, though, because I probably read it in 2008, 2009, somewhere in there. So reading it now, well, yes. Probably, it's... Maybe a little later, because I think it went three, four years. The problem is you need to quit waiting so long to read stuff. That's the issue. Hey, man, Iron Man <laughs> just wasn't a priority. He just wasn't a priority. I did see a Fraction talk at a Emerald City Comic Con about 10 years ago, and he was very sweet to a kid who was dressed as Iron Man. It was, that was very nice. Uh, Fraction seems like a good dude. Well, All right. let's talk about a not-so-good dude, Bob. <laughs> That's a great transition, <laughs> <laughs> Garibaldi. Talk about Garibaldi. Yeah, man. So uh, we see what uh, he describes as an excellent disguise. Um, when he and Franklin are going uh, down below in order to find Dr. Jacobs, who's on the run from Agent Cranston, Garibaldi dons a fedora that he doesn't even pull over his eyes, which I thought was not an excellent disguise. I thought it was an awful disguise. Bob, it's it's a bald guy thing. You, you wouldn't understand. Uh, people remember you because you are bald. So when you wear a hat, you're seriously unrecognizable. Like, I do it all huh. the time. If I go out in public and see somebody, I have to pull my hat up so they know who I am. It, I'm not I'm not kidding you. It, it's a real thing. Um, <laughs> I Thank you for sharing your lived experience. Now, uh, with now you know. With my, with my full hair privilege, I've never experienced this. Now you know why. It's, it's just a bald guy thing. It, it's It's awful. You know, you know why I keep my hair so long, right? Why, Bob? Because if I'm uh, ever falsely accused of something, which I'm sure I will be, 
and I need to go on the run, I just shave my beard and shave my hair. Instant disguise. Yeah, you'll be unrecognizable too. Yes, yes. Yeah. It's a, that, that's a trick I've cultivated. I thought it was that or you just could not afford a haircut. <laughs> I mean, haircuts are pretty, pretty dicey out here. And if I wait till I go home, uh, my cousin's girlfriend does cut it uh, very cheaply. So. And, and I can't really say anything because I like shave my own head. So, I mean, I, really, I have no clue how much it would cost. A major contention in my last relationship was they really wanted me to shave. And uh, I I told them I was never going to shave my, uh, never going to shave my beard. I've got that till I die now. I'm in the same boat, Bob. It covers up just enough of my like. uh, Adult acne. uh, uh, No, not adult acne. Uh, The, the chins. I have like two chins. So the hair covers up the other chin. I don't think I have two chins, but mine is not as, uh, not as sharp as uh, one would like. It's, it's a, it's a soft chin, a fat chin. So, but I also want to point out that when Garibaldi and Franklin stop for a snack at some point, they're actually eating Kellogg's Nutri-Grain bars. I mean, that, yeah, it's a good source of protein. Yeah, just, I mean, that's a legit Kellogg Nutri-Grain bar. They should have, they should have branded it and uh, that you know get the production a little extra money to up the CGI on uh, the co- on the cost ship. Yeah, we already know they screwed that up when they didn't even like make money off that motorcycle placement. Oh God, I still can't believe that. That's insane. Yeah, like, they made they made zero dollars off that. They could have like paid for the whole show with that. Yeah, foolish, foolish. So did uh, the voice of the guy who plays Max, the robber that waylays Dr. Jacobs down below, uh, ring a bell for you? No, I didn't know who that was. Yeah, so I thought he looked familiar, but I don't think I've ever seen him anything. But it's the voice of uh, Richard Mall, uh, who played Two-Face on Batman the Animated Series in the early 90s. So correct me if I'm wrong, but I think this brings our Batman the Animated Series guest appearances on Babylon 5 uh, up to Two Face, The Judge, Catwoman, Mister Freeze, and Ra's al Ghul. While we've seen the guy who played the Riddler on DS Nine, that is correct. It's all a WB thing, Bob. They're all hanging out. They get their uh, voiceover work done. Head on over and to they Babylon go across 5. the lot to uh, Babylon Five. Or they all walk um, out. They all walk out of the thing. They're like, "Hey, what's that over there? A sign-up sheet for Babylon Five. Awesome. Let's all sign up." And they did. I, I can tease you that the uh, voice of Batgirl will actually play a pretty important character on Babylon 5, too. Wow. See, that's what I'm saying. I think, I think it's just all, like, same lot, same area. Yeah. I will. I will. I did notice this, though. This is a little thing. Uh, uh-huh. I thought you'd get a kick out of this. When On one of the screens, when they show Dr. Jacobs, it actually says Dr. Jacoby. <laughs> I, didn't, I didn't catch that, but that's awesome. Good old, it's always nice to have a Twin Peaks reference. Oh, man. I did enjoy also that Sheridan was kind of having to pretend to be incompetent to Agent Cranston throughout this episode while uh, Franklin and Garibaldi rescued Jacobs. I thought that was a a nice little premise. Sheridan hamming it up a little bit with his incompetency. Yeah, yeah. Pretty good acting. Yeah, it it was pretty pretty good acting from Sheridan this week. Did you have any thoughts on the Vorlon ship being alive and uh, singing lullabies to Dr. Jacobs while he's hidden inside it? Like, I don't understand. It's like the Vorlon ship has like a radio, you know, or, or like a tape play. It's like, was the ship like, well, I got you here. Let me let me share my mixtape. Like, I don't understand. What's the point? I mean, I think it's a pretty common trope in SF to have like a singing starship. Like there's 
<laughs> what? <think>. What other? <laughs> Wait a minute. What? That is not a common trope. Give me another yeah, trope. It no, it's uh, not. Yeah, no, it is. Like Anne McCaffrey, you know Anne McCaffrey, who wrote those uh, Dragon Riders novels yeah. uh, that are that if you actually read are like kind of creepy and rapey. Like I, I bought one to give to a cousin who's like young and like likes SF and YA stuff. Yeah. But then I like read it before I gave it to her and it was like super rapey. And I was like, I don't think I'm going to give this to my little cousin. Thank God. That's scary. Yeah. Yeah. But, um, well, and it wasn't like rapey in like a, a, a dark way. It was like rapey and like, I guess in the late sixties, that's what some people got off on fantasy wise. Yeah. Yeah. uh, I would be giving that to your cousin. No, no, I didn't. I didn't. Um, I just sold that one back to the used bookstore. But anyway, McCaffrey, who wrote that Dragon Riders of Pern series, it's pretty famous. She also has a, a pretty popular novel that I believe is called The Starship Who Sings. Gotcha. And then I also just uh, got a, a novel from a boy, Alan, uh, for Christmas that's called A Space Opera by Catherine Valentine, where the, uh, the conceit is that instead of it's a space opera, but instead of intergalactic battles, it's intergalactic karaoke. Or how about Star Trek ships are always humming? Oh, okay. Okay. They do talk about that in Lower Decks. Yeah, that's true. Maybe I am. I'm, maybe it is a trope, Bob. Maybe you were right. So <laughs> does, does, does Kosh actually speak to the ship at the beginning? They like talk to each other? And I think that's a fair. Yeah, I think that's a fair okay. uh, read of it. Gotcha. All right. Uh, one thing I did want to point out is that there's like a smug ass look on Sheridan's face when he gives Sarah the crystal at the end of it that has all the data on it or whatever. And it kind of makes see, me wonder if it's a fake. Yeah. See, I think this is uh this is how paranoia poisons one's mind, Matt. You're just seeing plots within plots. You're just thinking of Anna as a traitor. You're just, you're so paranoid because the shows, I mean, granted the shows primed you for it, but you're just going too far. I'm just saying Sheridan gives her a smug ass look. And I'm wondering if his little, like his little, Oh, coo- come on, Matt. His like coo- you, you his cool like you've never ship. given, like you've never given someone a smug ass look for no discernible reason. Come on. I'm, uh, I mean, did he keep the data too for himself as well? Because I'm pretty, his little coup that he has on the ship probably needs that info as well. That you know we've established in the last episode. They the last they episode. wouldn't be the coup. I, I I guess you could call them the coup crew. Coup crew. Yes. What? Yes, Bob. The coup crew. You know oh, what I'm talking man, about. That sounds great. That sounds like a a, Mar- a Mardi Gras crew. That would be a great time. All right. One other thing I want to talk about this episode is that Kosh is going to teach Sheridan to fight legends. What is this? I I think you could. I don't think it's too much of a spoilers to say that by legends he means the shadows. It sounds like a dang damn God of War reference or something like a. He's going to fight legends. I don't think that's totally out of line to think that. Like God of War, like the video game. Yeah, that's I, I know. Okay, I, I know. want to make sure. I, I got that one. Thank you. you. I appreciate it. I, I usually do need that help, but yeah, no, I don't. I don't think that's out of line. Fight legends. IGN gives it a nine out of ten. Okay. I, I lived. I lived with other men in uh, the mid aughts. I I have heard of God of War at least. All right. Well, that kind of wraps up this uh, B five episode. Hit us with DS nine, Bob. Yeah, so we're transitioning over to Profit Motive, uh, the DS9 episode. So in the A-plot, we can say that Grand Negus Zek returns to the station to revise the rules of acquisition and transform Ferengis, but he's transforming them into the only thing more sinister than misogynistic capitalist. 
effective altruist. Sure enough. Peace you ever heard of hippies. effective altruism, Matt? Is that like peace-loving people that just want to like make everyone happy? Uh, you, you had to read John Stuart Mill in college, right? No, Bob. I, I got a degree in education. You didn't have to do like a. <laughs> you didn't have to do like a philosophy one hundred and one class. Yeah, I did, but it was like Cartesian philosophy and that kind of stuff. Did you take it at Georgia or West Georgia? I took it at Georgia. Did you take it with me? No. Because like our guy did like he did like one part Descartes, one part Mill, and then I for the third part was like a different kind of personal identity philosophy. I think no, this guy only did because uh, our arguments were cosmology. It was all it was oh, about. It's all just like arguments about the existence of God. Yes, all they were oh, it was nothing also that. known also known as the least interesting part of philosophy. That is all. It was. <laughs> That's all it was. The whole thing. But you, you're you're familiar with like utilitarianism. Yes, yes, I know utilitarianism. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So John Stuart Mill, just the most prominent utilitarian and effective altruist, are people who just apply um, apply utilitarian logic to uh, things like charity. And so they're like obsessed with like the most effective charitable donations you can make. So like, oh, if I give to this charity, like, you know, it, it, it's like not unreasonable stuff. It's like how much of this actually goes to help people versus how much goes to like staff and promotion and fundraising. And but just effective altruists are just fucking math nerds who take it too far and it gets kind of annoying. Gotcha. For those who don't know what utilitarianism is, it's oh, you want you. to you want to do what's best for the people. Not just the one single person, correct? Yeah, it's it basically it gets defined different ways, but it's basically that the goal of human action and social policy ought to be to aim at either pleasure or human happiness or you know the you know the human flourishing, however however you choose to define it. There's a lot of debates over how to define it, and then yeah, all actions should maxim should be to maximize that sort of you know, flourishing, happiness, whatever. And then there's, you get into some debates about like, do animals count in that calculus of, you know, prosperity? Does, if you make one person really, really happy, is that superior to making like 10 people slightly happy that, you know, kind of questions like that. And a lot of times it gets rendered down to be very mathematical, although not always. So is this where Spock's thing, the needs of the many outweigh the needs of the few or whatever? Yeah, yeah. I, I think that's, um, I think in general, that's a, the kind of statement a utilitarian would endorse, although most modern day utilitarians would probably think the needs needs to be better defined in that statement. And they would also want specifics about many versus few. Yeah, if, like, if you're interested, Peter Singer is the most prominent contemporary utilitarian philosopher, and he's a pretty interesting writer. Um, I, people say that the Vulcans are more like the, the Dutch philosopher Spinoza, who I've brought up on the podcast before. So moving off from philosophy to the B plot. Yes. In the B plot. <laughs> Couldn't get a good transition there, Bob, but, uh, no, no, your, your, your contempt for the <laughs> philosophy tangent was clear and that made it an effective transition. Good work, Matt. And you see on utilitarian grounds, the insult I took in your transition is outweighed by the amusement it will create for our listeners. So the harm to me is outweighed by the benefit to the listener. So on utilitarian grounds, your transition, I think, uh, can be validated. Makes sense. <laughs> <laughs> 
In, the, in C24, instead of commenting on professional sports, the station senior staff speculate on whether the very young Dr. Bashir can win the Carrington Prize, usually awarded to very senior doctors. Yeah, I was really enjoying the notion that a Carrington Prize nomination for a 103-year-old doctor was premature. The boredom of the philosophy and the boredom of the B-plot come together nicely. Oh, man. Yeah! Oh, that's brutal. That's brutal. <laughs> Did you think that this plot about Bashir being nervous about this prize was maybe foreshadowing something we learn about Bashir and his parents, I think, in season five? Yes, I did. Even the way that the dialogue was written, and it was just so like awkward it, it, towards the end. I was like, okay, this is this is telling us something. I just don't know what. And then I was like, oh, yeah, I remember now. that That's what we learned later on. I, I kind of don't know that it is. I think we're, I, I don't know, it, it could be, but I also think we might just be, it might just be pretty awkwardly written and we're projecting what we know happens later in order to compensate for the awkwardness. Yeah. We're making excuses for the poor, right? <laughs> yeah. It, it, it yeah. could be one or the other. It could be one yeah. or the other. Yeah. <laughs> so I have a, a very important question that some might call philosophical for you, Matt. Yes. Can a straight male Ferengi get off on another male Ferengi rubbing their ears, or would Ferengi culture be too homophobic about that? So what you're asking me is, do you think they sit in like a circle and rub each other's ears like a bunch of Ferengi dudes? Or just one-on-one, -on -one or a circle, whatever, you know, whatever. Little, uh, I'm pretty sure I'd be homophobic for them. Okay, okay. Well, have we ever seen... Now that I'm thinking about it, have we ever seen uh, umlocks, the Ferengi getting a, you know, a sexual ear massage? Have we ever seen that be done in public or is it always done in private? Uh, I want to say I've seen it done in public before. Uh, I think there was, yeah, it's been, we've seen it in public before. Okay. Okay. Yeah. Cause I could, I, I always get, I guess kind of going back and forth over whether like clearly the Ferengi experience it is sexual and the people doing it usually don't experience it as sexual. Right. So I was just kind of thinking like how much in Ferengi culture is it like publicly acceptable to get umlocks in public or around other Ferengi. And I, yeah, I, I can't think of specific examples, but yeah, you're probably right. Yeah. I've never seen a male giving another male Ferengi rubbing ears or whatever. What are they? What's it called? Umla? Um, umla? Um, umlocks, I think. Umlocks. Yeah, I never seen him give umlocks to another another male. <laughs> but you could probably Google that and find some if you'd like. You're welcome to it. Oh, I'm sure there. I'm sure there's a thriving fan art community of it. A couple of things from the beginning of this episode that did stand out to me. Uh, I love that Rom is actually stealing furniture from Quarks to furnish his quarters. <laughs> that there's just something funny about that. Like it's just, it, it seems so Ferengi. Also love that the reason Nog is absent from this episode is because he's visiting his grandmother. I mean, at least he doesn't have a class that he's supposed to substitute or supposed to teach, but he's leaving for months at a time. Yeah, he's not on some excursion on some planet with Jake. Or well, I mean that that's fair at this point because it's uh, at least the class has been closed down because of uh, you know the tyranny of Kaiwen. Actually, I think it's the fear of the Dominion, not the tyranny of Kaiwen. He's taking his Starfleet entrance exams. <laughs> I, w I was really enjoying so you know obviously the big reveal of the episode is that Grand Nagazek went to try and negotiate with the prophets they found him very annoying 
and altered him to be a lot more benevolent, altered him into being an effective altruist. And it was sort of amusing that when Quark meets the prophets, um, that we see that the, both the prophets and the Federation share a total disdain for the Ferengi's aggressive capitalism. And uh, yeah, it, it was great. Um, both the prophets and Quark refer to what the prophets did to Zek in turning him into an effective altruist as a devolution, which was very funny. Yeah, so so what you're saying is basically aggressive capitalism is an evolutionary trait. I the, apparently the it is in the Ferengi because they were not always aggressive capitalists, but then they evolved into it according to the dialogue. Wow, that's hmm. I, I don't I don't know if I agree with that. I mean, I, I maybe. I mean, there is there is a weird thing on Star Trek in general. I was noticing this on last week's episode of Discovery where things that seem like they're just cultural traits that could change about a species get um, naturalized or reified into being facts of their biology. And it's just like, eh, that's, that's not one of the best things Star Trek does. Maybe they should try and do less about that. I just don't know if I can, if I agree with that, like if that's something that really happens. But I mean, it's, I don't know. I guess when we meet other, I guess when we like, on actual earth meet other pe other species we, we can see if they have some of the same traits and if they evolved that way yeah yeah maybe Unfortunately, so. we, we can't do that we can just compare one ship bag to another ship bag <laughs> i was also deeply <laughs> amused that uh quark couldn't argue the profits into uh turning zek back into capitalism or into the value of capitalism but he could argue them into re-evolving Zek in order to avoid further contact with the Ferengi, which I thought was a nice touch. Yeah, there's like no way they can keep the end of that, like the Ferengi can keep their end of the deal. So I'm kind of wondering if like that further communication with the Prophets is why we end up with different Ferengi and Disco. I, I mean, I suspect that as a result of this, Grand Nagus Zek would make a policy that Ferengi uh, must not uh, contact the Prophets. Yeah, but does he remember any of it? Oh, that's a good point. It's kind of implied at the end he didn't remember any of it. But see, here's my thing. Do we? What's the next evolution from uh, aggressive capitalism for the Ferengi? Is that why the, dis the disco Ferengi are so different? Well, we, we sort of get a hint of that in the series finale at DS9. Yeah, yeah. Pretty cool. It's like they were setting it up way back here, Bob. Yeah. Way to go, writers. So <laughs> long-term plans right so this does uh, kind of raise another uh, boring philosophy question that i'm going to subject you to so a lot of times you'll hear religious people or people who believe capitalism is inevitable or people who are like really hardcore darwinists not just people who believe in evolution but who believe like evolutionary evolutionary imperatives like deeply, deeply shape and determine your psychology. Um, they tend to favor um, arguments for a kind of unitary human nature. And I'm a lot more of what you would call like a relativist on this issue. I tend to think that human nature is pretty different across different modes of life. So that hunter gatherers have a pretty different kind of baseline set of behaviors, values, responses than people who, you know, or agricultural workers or the industrial workers or people who are post-industrial workers. And uh, so I'm kind of curious, do you, are you more of a believer in a sort of unitary human nature across circumstances? Or are you more on uh, my side of relativism and kind of variation depending on the mode of living? 
Um, I kind of believe that, like human nature is innate. So the person with the most and best resources is probably going to be better off. So I feel like this applies to all your modes of life. You know, the way you were describing them, like hunter-gatherer, uh, agricultural serfdom. Whoever can create or produce the best resources and the most resources is going to be better off than the other person. And I think instinctually we don't necessarily have a reason to help our fellow man unless they can provide better resources. I mean, that's just, it's sad, but that's kind of how we're programmed. I, I mean, there's a lot of argument about this, but arguably that's not true of hunter-gatherer societies. Arguably hunter-gatherer societies are actually pretty egalitarian, which is not to say that there's no hierarchy or no abuse, but just that they're pretty flat and that there tends to be a really high social premium put on sharing things like food. And that also, you know, so so the more optimistic anthropologies of hunter-gatherers go, the sense is that actually you don't actually have to work that much as a hunter-gatherer. Like, you you know, it only takes you a few hours to get the, necess the necessaries for survival. And then the rest of the day you can either, you know, pursue hobbies or do like more advanced sort of work. So that... The argument would go that we were we were pretty different uh, before the agricultural revolution. I don't, I don't know. I, I just I haven't done any kind of research like that, Bob. But I'm assuming that like hunter got like there were hunters that gathered that were able to catch more, and they probably kept it to themselves, and this led to other hunters no, killing no, no. them they, to they, take most, their stuff. Mo as from what I understand about the anthropology most hunter-gatherer bands have like really brutal sharing like taboos yeah. and if you violate that and hoard resources you will be collectively punished by the group like well, either violently or just in terms of being expelled well, wow a little star came across my head bob i learned something today did not know that <laughs> thank you bob <laughs> there's a there's a good book uh, called sex at dawn that's kind of about some of this although it's a very controversial book, and some of the worst people in the world hate it, like Steven Pinker. So I'm not qualified to say whether or not it's accurate, but given that Steven Pinker thinks it's not, I'm inclined to believe it is. Well, don't leave that stuff sitting on your coffee table either. People are going to think you're weird. <laughs> I mean, it's basically an argument for polyamory, but that's a whole yep. other thing. <laughs> <laughs> that's why you should not leave it sitting on your coffee table. All right. I mean, I, in, up here in Seattle, Matt, it would be weird if you didn't have sex at dawn on your coffee table. Back to back to DS9, Bob. I was going to say that I thought the end when uh, Quark tells Rom that father would be proud of him embezzling money from Zek was a uh, very, very sweet and a nice end to the episode. Yeah, and they're going to actually sell the ore back to the Bajorans, which to me was like the most Ferengi thing they could possibly do. <laughs> which makes this the most Ferengi episode we've ever watched. Like, it's going to be hard to top this. When you sell the orb back to the Bajorans at a higher price, then you know you're, <laughs> you've accomplished something as a Ferengi. Well, don't worry. We still have uh, Jeffrey Combs as a Ferengi to come. Oh, yeah, that'll be good. I forgot about that. That'll be good stuff. Yeah, great, great stuff. We have a very hashtag problematic Ferengi episode in either six season six or season seven. We'll have to be careful not to not get ourselves canceled on that one. Yeah, we got to be careful sometimes with these these type things. Cancel cancel culture is just a modern form of expelling the uh, expelling the person who does wrong in the hunter gatherer tribe. All right then, but we're not really hunter gatherers at this point. I don't think. Nope, nope, and it's nope. that's uh, we're.
probably worse off for it. All right, so we're going to move away from DS9 and move on to one, one quick watch, Conspiracy Watch. I just want to make it clear, it's made apparent in this episode that Vice President Clark knew about the assassination of Santiago and left the ship due to a viral infection, is what he said he had. And we have Sheridan finally utilizing his resources on B5 after the big reveal a few episodes ago to try to unravel this conspiracy. Is that what I'm supposed to get from this? Yes, you're correct. And okay. really, if you think about it, this is the only way we'll ever uh, learn the truth about JFK or 9-11, if there is a truth to learn about those events, is if we get a noble person in the deep state like Sheridan who uh, hoards the information and then leaks it. I'm not holding my breath, but that's really all we have to hope for. Could be one of us, Bob. Let's do it. I We're both too old to join the deep state, Matt. Damn it. All right, so <laughs> character. I'm too old to join the army. I'm too old to do the cool shit like that. Man. <laughs> yep sorry bro sorry. 30 your, your 30 suck all right character of the week mine goes to quark uh i feel like he's been my character of the week a couple of times now which is surprising it's uh you know i don't really relate to him all that much but oh i i, I relate to quark a lot oh, i mean well. there's certain things about quark that are problematic and i don't relate to but <laughs> but there are certain other things about quark that are problematic and i very much do relate to you so yeah who's your character of the week bob uh, my character of the week was Sheridan. I don't think I've picked Sheridan before, but this was a very good Sheridan episode. Um, he got to be kind of uh, sly and sassy around both Sarah and um, uh, Agent Cranston. That was fun. You know, he made advancements with the Ku crew. I liked it. Well, I also want to point out, too, like him talking, the way he talked to Kosh was awesome. Oh, that was, yeah, yeah. That's actually the better, you're right, that's the better part of it is yeah. more him dealing with Kosh than him dealing with the A-plot. That was That was pretty badass. That's some edge of your seat stuff when he starts jumping all over Kosh. I'm kind of having a vision of like Sheridan like socking Kosh in the jaw, like, and then Kosh kind of like Q style being like, "What the hell, P Picard or Sinclair wouldn't have done that." Yeah, you're right. I, I could, you could see that. Like, I, I, I would be interested. I, I hope that happens now. I, I never thought about that, but that's kind of an interesting comparison to think of Sinclair and Sheridan as kind of analogous to Picard and Cisco. I don't think it whole, wholly holds up, but it's kind of interesting. That would be awesome. All right, episode of the week, Bob. I'm going to give it to Profit Motive. Uh, this is probably the second Ferengi episode I think I've given episode of the week to, which is strange, but I'm actually liking the, the Ferengi episodes as we're going through them. I mean, I just, I don't know why they just left a bad taste in my mouth the couple, last couple of views I've seen of the season. But uh, this is definitely the most Ferengi episode you'll ever see. When the was the last time you watched through Deep Space Nine? Uh, probably f 2011, so 10, See, year, I, 10 years ago. I think it's as we get older, we appreciate the humor better, whereas when we're younger, we want it to be more serious. It's like a fine wine. <laughs> I, I, that's, no, I, I wouldn't say that. That's asinine. Yeah, you're right. There was a fit, but you know, it just sounded funny. Yeah, and I will say that this did have the most boring subplot that you'll very quickly forget. Yeah, yeah. It was for that reason that I gave it to Hunter Prey. I, the, the, the subplot on Profit Motive was just wretched. But, um, yeah, I, I thought Hunter Prey was great. Like I said, I remember this one, like, really excited me when I got to it in watching through Babylon 5 Season 2 the first time. So I, I was very happy to revisit it. And I will say one other point. Um, 
given the transformation that Picard goes through at the end of Picard season one, um, something kind of maybe could be drawn as a connection between that and Sinclair. So I think that's worth thinking about. Sinclair is an android. I didn't say that. <laughs> You're trying to tell me they put his body in an android body. They put, his put, bra- him in a, sorry, put his brain in an android body. <laughs> they put it. him in a goddamn robot, man. Yeah. A goddamn <laughs> robot. That's amazing. Holy shit. All right. All ne- right. Next week, Bob, on B5, we have There All the Honor Lies. Ooh, that's a that's a bad title. I think it's a good episode if I remember right, but that's a bad title. There all the honor lies, and then in so in DS9 we have Visionary, which looks to be an episode that focuses on the Romulans. All right then. Huh. A little bit okay, of I don't remember that one. That'll be interesting to re-encounter. Romulans. All right then. All right. Well, this has been Babylon 5 versus DS9, the galaxy's greatest podcast about the two great 90s space station shows. We are a part of Uncanny Treks. This is Bob in Seattle. That's Matt from the Southland. Have a great night, everybody. Thanks for listening.